KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, abortion and its opponents. Do opponents of abortion really believe abortion providers are baby killers? There's some new research about that. Found opponents of abortion nevertheless help family members and friends get abortions. Katha Pollitt will explain. Also, bad Mexicans. That's what the revolutionaries of 1910 were called as they fought on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border against the robber barons and their political allies. UCLA historian Kelly Little Hernandez tells that story, which is the subject of her new book. But first, of course, Tuesday was the California primary. The New York Times analysis was that in California on Tuesday, quote, voters delivered a stark warning to the Democratic Party about the potency of law and order as a political message in 2022, close quote. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the New York Times analysis written by somebody called Shane Goldmacher pointed to the L.A. mayoral race and the San Francisco recall of progressive prosecutor Chesa Boudin. Uh, They're still counting as we speak on Wednesday. They'll still be counting next Wednesday. But let's start with the uh, mayor's election in L.A., where billionaire real estate developer Rick, Rick Caruso spent $40 million of his own money in the primary for mayor and failed to get the 50% to avoid a runoff that he was hoping for. It looks like he's going to get about 42% of the vote. I calculate he's going to end up spending about $100 a vote. That's got to be a record. Uh, Biden spent $13 a vote to get elected president. Karen Bass came in second with 37%. Uh, Are these results a stark warning to the Democratic Party? Well, I I think they are a warning. Yes, I don't know quite how stark, uh, but uh, in in the formulation of is this a law and order vote, uh, I would emphasize order uh, more than law. I would emphasize, uh, you know, I I was thinking, and I'll be writing about this later in the week, I I was thinking uh, when Michael Harrington wrote The Other America, he, he talked about this new phenomenon in America in which the poor were invisible. Well, uh, one thing uh, that characterizes uh, modern times, the last few years in particular, is that uh, a segment of the poor have become very visible. And it's the segment that would be, I think, uh, most marginal and therefore in many ways most upsetting to the people who see them uh, nearby, uh, on their street, on their doorstep, in the alley behind their place. Uh, and I think that is driving uh, e- e- even more than rises in crime or what have you. I mean, a case, uh, Chase of Boudin in San Francisco can argue that uh, actually serious crime has not risen since he became DA. Uh, but, and it's risen uh, more. It's risen more in cities like Sacramento that have traditional law and order DAs. There you go. There you go. This is, is kind of like inflation. I mean, you know, uh, you you blame the president, but then inflation is worldwide. Yeah. Uh, and there's no such thing as a domestic market in uh, fossil fuel, for instance. So, um, you know, the, the the same with disorder. Um, although, let's face it, uh, you know, the, given the weather. 
Uh, there are more homeless people visible on the street here than there are uh, just, you know, as a percentage uh, in Fargo, North Dakota, where you would not, you know, you, you would really work on getting yourself indoors uh, no matter, you know, in what desperate straits you might, you might be. I, w- I would say that really does factor. And, you know, Caruso kind of drew to an inside straight in as much as what he is known for is producing these fantasy-like clean environments like the Grove or you yes. know, Palisades Village or, uh, you know, uh, so. Um, Miramar Resort in, in, in Montecito. Yes, I, I used to be able to afford it when it was a plain old Miramar Hotel. Now I can't <laughs> even afford to look at it. Uh, but the, uh, uh, but his best shot may have been the primary, because uh, there really wasn't much bringing out people to the polls now, whereas in November, uh, you will get a a considerably larger and more diverse group of Angelinos voting who will be brought to the polls to make sure that uh, Congress doesn't create a national uh, anti-abortion law and things like that. Uh, that's not to say he's still not a formidable opponent. And if he spent 40 million in the primary, Lord only knows how much he can yeah. spend between now and November. Maybe, yeah. You know, maybe five times that, maybe more. Um, the guy is worth a little over $4 billion. And uh, uh, that uh, is a, a big chunk of change for someone running for mayor. Well, the thing that, that, alarmed me about Caruso's showing was the poll, the LA Times poll the weekend before the election, which showed where his support comes from. Of course, it's highest among white men, we would expect that. But I was surprised that he got the support of about half of black men. And he he had a lead among Latino men. These are all Democrats. So apparently, men who are Democrats are not eager to vote for a black woman, even a really talented and accomplished uh, one. Does this seem ominous to you? It is It is reflective of a lot of things. One of the things it's reflective of is, you know, a sense that gets propagandized by the right, uh, but it's also sort of real about the decline in status of working class men in, in, in general, which, which has its roots in, in the economy, really, in which uh, the number of job, the percentage of jobs that uh, require, you know, a certain level of strength to do manual labor uh, continually shrinks. And, you know, there's a lot out there with which liberalism is identified, uh, gender equity, increasingly, as the right would have it, sexual fluidity, whatever, uh, that uh, you, you could imagine how that might uh, rankle and upset uh, certain groups of men, certain groups of working class men. Uh, you know, I mean, there's more to identity than race. Uh, there is gender and uh, there is cultural traditionalism. Uh, and you'll find that in both the uh, Black and Latino as well as the white uh, community. And is there anything Karen Bass can do to win over more of the Black men and Latino men? Well, I think she can certainly highlight Rick Caruso's republicanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think she can... How, how uh, about his billionaireism? 
and his and his billionaireism. Although you know he, he doesn't have a record quite like Trump, who, right. whose record as an employer consisted largely of stiffing the people who had worked for him. Yeah, uh, you you don't hear that about Caruso. I don't think uh, you know I, that probably isn't a feature of that. So uh, I I think Karen Bass is sort of running on the the kind of nuanced liberalism uh, that's uh, you know required to uh, win an election in, in in a place like L.A., uh, which you know which means she's not uh, calling for slashing. Uh, the police department. But, you know, there is a certain penalty that uh, attaches simply to delivering a thoughtful, nuanced answer on homelessness. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you, you, there are people out there who say I've had it and I want a, some kind of clean sweep. Well, legally and practically, a clean sweep is impossible. But if you say it, and uh, it's the sort of thing that Caruso says, um, you know, there's a lot of people who find that viscerally more appealing. Yeah. Of course, the other big contest in Los Angeles is the sheriff, Alex Villanueva, running for re-election the sheriff. This is the guy who ran as a reformer four years ago, was going to uh, do something about the excessive force, the corruption, gangs, uh, and then betrayed his promises, sold out his followers, became a hardliner, um, kind of a racist in many ways against black people. Um, he is Latino and he has done a lot to promote Latinos in the department, we understand. Uh, but this is our chance to replace the man who betrayed the reformers. And uh, he uh, was hoping to come in first since he's by far the best known figure of the many who were, who were running, but he did not make it to 50%. Uh, looks like he's going to end up with slightly more than a third. This also seems to me to be a defeat for what you might call a traditional law and order candidate. And it looks like now the um, reform groups will will try to unite as much as they can around the former uh, police chief of Long Beach, Robert Luna. So we will have two Latinos competing for what's one of the biggest law enforcement jobs in the United States. Uh, that's true. Uh, there, you know, I mean, one of the things this reflects is the whole increasing idiocy of counties electing their own sheriff. Yeah. Uh, in uh, in cities, the city government appoints a chief. Uh, in uh, L.A. County, uh, you have sort of an ongoing conflict between the county board of supervisors, which controls the finances and budgets for all of the county, including the sheriff's department, and the sheriff who, other than on the budget, is autonomous uh, and can ignore uh, the, the, the county board of supervisors. But given that in order to run uh, uh, for sheriff, you have to, at some point, I think, been employed uh, by that agency, it also limits the pool of candidates and limits the pool of options uh, far beyond uh, any other elective office. Um, so in a sense, uh, Villanueva is sort of the logical consequence and or reductio ad absurdum of that process. You know, uh, you can only replace a sheriff with a deputy sheriff or someone who was a deputy sheriff. And uh, really uh, uh, that limits, above all, that limits the political pool of candidates from which a voter can choose. 
you know, in, in, in some ways it, you know, and, and Villanueva has demonstrated this. And in some ways it's, it's the ultimate Tweedledee, Tweedledum election. I'm not saying Luna isn't better. Uh, uh, clearly all the reformers are going to back Luna. Uh, uh, and as to whether this is a rejection of a law and order candidate, I mean, uh, the, the objections against Villanueva aren't so much that he's been law and order and cracked down as that he's been uh, lax with the share, the internal gangs within the sheriff's department things like that. So uh, it's more like, it's not, it, it's less that he's a law and order guy as that he's a bad cop. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that may well be sufficient and let us hope to defeat him. But again, the whole idea of counties electing their own sheriffs from their limited talent pool of people who have been deputies uh, is uh, in increasingly ridiculous. I like you calling it limited talent because that's certainly what we've seen uh, uh, lately. We have to talk about San Francisco, bluest of the blue cities, one of the first to elect a progressive district attorney, Chase Boudin, wonderful person, you know, principled guy, losing his recall 60 to 40. This is kind of a tragedy in my opinion. Um, and he got blamed for rising crime, as we've said, totally unfair. Um, and we wonder, I mean, the New York Times says this is a, you know, wake up call to the Democrats that this is going to happen other places. There is a, a, a recall attempt underway for uh, L.A.'s progressive prosecutor, George Gascon. They have not succeeded in getting enough signatures yet. Uh, in Philadelphia, progressive prosecutor Larry Krasner defeated a recall attempt. So I'm not sure that San Francisco isn't an outlier here. Well, so what is the difference between Philadelphia and San Francisco? I don't think so much the crime rate. I think it's so much the homeless issue and the general deterioration of neighborhoods that are saturated with homeless people. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, again, uh, no one wants to be on the sidewalk in Philadelphia during the winter or given the level of humidity during the summer. Uh, <laughs> now that so, you mention it. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, speaking as someone who is now in Washington, D.C. Um, so I, I'm not quite sure that the issue really uh, is so much crime as it is disorder. Uh, mm -hmm. And like I said at the outset, the problem of the visibility and the uh, proximity of, uh, you know, the most disordered and marginal and uh, uh, group of, of, of poor people, which is disproportionately represented among, among the homeless. One other big thing in the political news this week, televised hearings of the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. At last, the first one will be Thursday, June 9th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. So after 11 months of hearings and more than a thousand interviews, the committee is ready to show us what it knows. Representative Jamie Raskin says they will, quote, blow the roof off the house, close quote. What do we know about what they planned and what do you think the impact of these might be? Well, they have been working, among others, with the former president of ABC News. Uh, and I, I would imagine they're going to make each of the, I think there are going to be six uh, primetime hearings, uh, a, a, a bit of a, with a, 
kind of an ongoing storyline uh, production interspersing video of the January 6th with video testimony with some live testimony, which strikes me as the only part of the hearings that could be uh, unscripted. Uh, Jamie Raskin is a uh, confirmed straight shooter. And I think it's, it's clear that if he's promised uh, blowing the roof off, I would expect there would be uh, some major revelations. I, I, I don't really quite understand how, how much the members of the committee, uh, how much screen time, as it were, they are uh, going to get. Uh, in the original Watergate hearings, which, you know, and we're, we're coming up very soon on the 50th anniversary of Watergate, uh, some of the committee members became national figures, particularly the chairman of the committee, Sam Irvin, uh, who had one of the deepest Southern accents and kind of, you know, old Southern colonel charm as he eviscerated the uh, members of the Nixon administration. Uh, it's not clear to me how this is going to play, although I, I, I note with some delight that in the Sam Irvin role this time around is Benny Thompson, who is not an old Southern white segregationist, but the one black member of, uh, of uh, Congress from Mississippi. So uh, that at least denotes uh, some kind of historic progress. Thursday at 5 p.m. in uh, Los Angeles, going to be on all the networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, CNN, with one exception, Fox News. I understand they're going to show highlights of the testimony of Ivanka and Jared. That's I'm looking forward to that. Certainly unprecedented for presidential children to testify in an investigation of their father for fomenting an insurrection on TV. That's going to be a first. It is. And if Ivanka and Jared are being, you know, are, are going to be testifying as witnesses, the committee has to be fairly certain that they will not be simply covering uh, for Ivanka's pop. Uh, so th that should be very interesting indeed. Uh, of course, we do have the one one counter example, which is the Iran Contra hearings, which were sort of the opposite of of the Watergate hearings. They they were fizzled out and ended up not hurting uh, Reagan at all. Well, but th that's actually uh, well. I mean, it was original hearings, if I'm remembering correctly, that reviewed revealed the whole Iranian uh, uh, nexus uh, right. that it was trading money. arms for hostages. Yes. Yes. Uh, th that did come out in the hearings. And, you know, I mean, historically hearings like this, if they have anything really unexpected, uh, the, you know, and at some point the most uh, revelatory thing about the Watergate hearings was when some White House third, third rank staffer named Alexander Butterfield was, and by the way, Everything President Nixon ever said in his offices is on tape. And we should uh, be able to check that. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, you know, now, for, unfortunately, <clears throat> uh, presumably the same is not true with, pre, uh, with, uh, with, with Trump. Uh, if someone does actually say that, we are, uh, you know, in a very different ballgame. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks as always for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. It's the 
same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about abortion and its opponents. Do opponents of abortion really believe that an embryo is the equivalent of a baby? Do they really think abortion providers are baby killers? There's some new research about that. For a report, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. We reached her today in Manhattan. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. It's good to hear your voice. Well, abortion opponents say abortion is murder, but they don't want to punish women who get abortions. Isn't there something wrong with their logic? Well, I think there is. I mean... A woman, according to them, it should be a woman who has an abortion is like a person who hires a hitman. Um, But they say they only want to punish the doctors and maybe the staffers. Um, And I think that's for political reasons. And I'm not even sure they're sincere, but that is what they say. Well, they do have reasons. The reason abortion opponents give for not punishing women who get abortions is that these women are too desperate or too irrational or too ignorant or else maybe they were misled by a bad boyfriend or bad parents. But couldn't the same thing be said about many people who kill? Maybe all of them? Yes, I think that's a very good point that I made. Um, (laughs) In your column. Usually the fact that you had a reason doesn't mean you didn't commit the crime of murder. So now we have a scientific study that suggests an answer to the question, do anti-abortion people really believe abortion is murder? What is the answer in brief? Well, according to me, although not according (laughs) to them, this is a paper called Discordant Benevolence, How and Why People Help Others in the Face of Conflicting Values, which was recently published in Science Advances. And what they say is that they found that regardless of their beliefs, Americans extend support to friends or family members seeking an abortion. Um, And this might surprise you. Large numbers of people who say they are morally opposed to abortion would help someone they know. Uh, Not someone they don't know, but you've got to know them. Uh, Choose your friends and family wisely. Um, 76% would offer emotional support. Um, And although only 6% would help pay for an abortion, and I was surprised that any would, but over 40% would help with logistics, like giving a woman a ride to the clinic or watching her kids while she goes off. So I have a question about this. Mm -hmm. Only 6% of opponents of abortion would help a friend or family member pay for an abortion, but 40% would give them a ride to the clinic. Why this distinction between giving them money and giving them a ride? Well, I think that uh, for the writers, for the authors, uh, money is highly symbolic. It feels personal. It feels like a real stamp of approval. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, The teenage sister of a friend of mine needed money for an abortion. And a friend of hers said, well, he was Catholic, and so he couldn't give her any. But he gave money to a mutual friend to give to her. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of purified it in some way. Um, And of course, as we all know, money is fungible. If you give it for one purpose, it helps with some other purpose. But that is how they rationalize it to themselves. So it sounds like they're just hypocritical. But I believe the authors of this article thought that there was a a conflict of values here and that that's a better way to understand it. Well, clearly some anti-choicers who help 
their girlfriends, for example, get abortions are hypocritical. I mean, there are plenty of there are politicians who get in trouble for this rather frequently. Um, but what they say is that they sincerely hold two values. And one is that abortion is really wrong. And the other is um, you're my friend. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so they they reconcile these in various ways. They extend commiseration. They say, well, abortion is wrong, but life is hard and people are imperfect. Or they make an exception. Abortion is wrong, but this is my daughter. Or then there's what the authors call discretion. Abortion is wrong, but this woman is entitled to make her own decision. So that last one actually opens the door to a whole political world of legal abortion. Well, yes, yes, you would definitely think so. But they don't take it there. They they just take it to, I'm going to have a cup of coffee with you, and I'm still going to be your friend, and we'll talk about this. But in the end, it's up to you. So this finding that anti-abortion people are willing to help friends and family members get abortions, it's not just an interesting you know, hypothetical finding right now. It's totally relevant right now. Yes, indeed, because right now in Texas— and also in Idaho, just uh, the other day, um, helping someone get an abortion after six weeks can get you in a lot of trouble. The money for the procedure, driving them to the clinic, all the rest of it, lay you open to a civil suit by any random person who finds out and cares to sue. And the, they, the, the person who sues you can get a lot of money and from you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Anti-abortion forces thus render criminal this human impulse to help fam family and friends, and which harms the very thing they and we tend to claim to value so highly, which is the bedrock of community. So the funny thing is many of the people who oppose abortion say they would do the very things that the politicians they voted for have criminalized. And if you're in Texas right now and you need an abortion— if you're in East Texas, you pretty much have to go to Louisiana. If you're in North Texas, you pretty much have to go to Oklahoma, and you need somebody to drive you. So this is a burning issue right now for lots of young women in Texas. Definitely, and it's only going to get worse because as the states around Texas also pass these laws or others, especially if the courts overturn Roe v. Wade, the court overturns Roe v. Wade, then you'll have to go even farther. And at a certain point, it will just become impossible. Well, I'm calling you today from California, where California is about to allocate lots of money to pay for uh, travel to California for abortion. So it won't be impossible, but it'll be difficult. My question is whether these anti-abortion people really believe what they think they do. I mean, murder is very serious. And if, if your niece said, oh, I've had it with motherhood, I'm going to kill my newborn, <laughs> probably wouldn't offer a helping hand. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> or tell yourself, well, that's her decision to make. Um, so maybe a few people would. But for most of us, personal loyalty go only goes so far. So I, I really question whether the people who say abortion is murder have really thought it through. Well, now for something completely different. Recently, you went on the nation's civil rights history tour. I've always wondered what that was like. What was it like? The nation civil rights tour is really something you shouldn't miss. Um, it's, it was about 20 people, and we were led by um, 
Andre Robert Lee, who is a filmmaker and a teacher and, you know, deeply, deeply knowledgeable and invested in this whole history. We started out in Jackson. We saw the bus stop where people were, the bus station where the Freedom Riders were arrested. We visited Medgar Evers's house where he was assassinated. We went to Little Rock and saw the high school where Elizabeth Eckford was in a famous photo, one of the, she was one of the nine, the Little Rock Nine who integrated that school, where she, there's a famous photo of her being screamed at by a white student as she tries to get to the school. It was a whole nightmare. But anyway, there was Elizabeth Eckford and she talked to us. We, we talked to all these wonderful old civil rights people who are so full of life and stories and so lively. Um, and that was really interesting. And what did, what did Elizabeth Eckford say about being the first person to integrate Little Rock High School? Oh, well, she, she said that worse than the, all the screaming mobs and all the rest and needing to be protected by, you know, federal troops was that for the entire time she was there, no, but none of the students talked to her. She was bullied every day, physically pushed into lockers and walls. And, you know, uh, as the other as the other black students were. Um, and that's the part of the, these stories that I think doesn't really enter into history so much because there isn't a picture that goes with it. And it's sort of like, oh, we solved the problem there in school. Goodbye. Um, but, <laughs> but on to the next. But but really, these episodes were what shall I say? They, they had a lot of repercussions in the lives of the people involved. Um, and they lasted for a long time. And you went to Montgomery, where the 1954 bus boycott sort of launched Martin Luther King as a national figure and nonviolent direct action as the tactic of the civil rights movement. Yes, we did. And we also went to Birmingham, where the four little girls were blown up, were blown up in that church bombing. 1963. Um, 1963. And we met some wonderful people who are doing voter registration work now. Because the thing that you really realize when you actually go to these places is all these things are still happening. All these, you know, it's still a struggle to vote um, and it's becoming harder. Um, there's still tremendous, tremendous black poverty, which in a way is kind of worse, I felt, because a lot of the places that used to be very lively, urban places like Jackson, are now emptied out. They look like sort of a big parking lot. Um, there's just not a lot happening because the people who could afford to leave have left. At least a lot of them have. So anyway, go. The nation's civil rights tour. And one more thing. You have news about a new feminist magazine. Oh, yes. This magazine is called Lieber, L-I-B-E-R, a review, a feminist review of books. Lieber stands for, means free in Latin, and also book. So there's that. And we've published, all, we've, we've had one issue out, published some wonderful stuff, poems. I'm the poetry editor. I have to, that's very important. I'm the, poetry, <laughs> I'm the poetry editor. Yes. And we've published uh, wonderful poems by Joy Layden. We've published Chris Krause, Laurie Stone, a lot of really interesting writers. Um, the next issue will have poems by Molly Peacock who is wonderful. Five poems by Molly Peacock. That's not something you see every day. So you need to subscribe, everyone out there. And you can find out more 
at LieberReview.com, where you can get a subscription. Katha Pollitt, her new column at The Nation is titled, Even Pro-Lifers Help Loved Ones Who Need an Abortion. Read it at TheNation.com. Katha, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. The same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Mexican Revolution of 1910. That's the one with the slogan, Tierra y Libertad, Land and Liberty. The one where Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata led the fight to overthrow Porfirio Diaz, who had invited investors from the United States to buy millions of acres of Mexican land and take control of Mexican railroads, oil, and mining. That revolution was sparked by a band of migrant rebels from the United States, the Magonistas, led by a brilliant radical named Ricardo Flores Magón. Now that story has been told by historian Kelly Little Hernandez. She holds the Thomas E. Lifka Endowed Chair in History at UCLA, where she is director of the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies. She's a leader in the fight against mass incarceration and author of the award-winning books Migra and City of Inmates. She's also the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. Her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly Little Hernandez, welcome back. Thank you for having me on, John. Well, everyone knows something about Pancho Villa and Zapata. I didn't know anything about the Magonistas until I read your book. Who was Ricardo Flores Magón, and how did he become the target of a joint U.S.-Mexico counterinsurgency campaign in 1910? So Ricardo Flores Magón was a journalist in Mexico, and he was part of a small group of journalists at the turn of the 20th century who were challenging the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz, and they largely were working out of Mexico City. And after Porfirio Diaz had attempted several times to suppress their, their newspaper, Renacion, and put them in jail and in prison and smashed up their printing presses and actually issued a gag order prohibiting any newspaper in Mexico from publishing their words or articles. The gag orders issued in 1903. This group of journalists, dissident journalists, crossed the border into the United States, into Laredo, Texas in particular, to relaunch their newspaper, Regeneración, and hopefully organize a revolution against the dictator back in Mexico. And so what this book does, it tells the story of how they rebuilt their social movement on the U.S. side of the border and the efforts of the Mexican government and the United States government working together to suppress their social movement and to stop them from inciting a revolution. Now, why would the United States government get involved? Well, the United States government, um, through really significant U.S. investors, think about the Guggenheims and the Rockefellers, all the major names of the Robert Barron era, They had made major investments in Diaz's Mexico, as you had said, bought up millions of acres of land and come to dominate key industries from railroads to oil to mining. And they wanted to protect those investments. And Diaz had always been the one to protect those investments. So they wanted to protect Diaz. And so it's the United States government and the Mexican government 
working together to try to suppress a social movement led by journalists, but that's joined by ordinary people, cotton pickers and miners, migrant workers and whatnot. Let's talk about Mexicans in the United States in 1910. As historians, we remember the Mexican War of 1846 to 48 when the United States conquered a huge swath from Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, and a huge population of Mexicans were now inside the borders of the United States. So we're talking about 50 years after that when the Southwest has a large population of people who originally lived in Mexico. Certainly. So there's the population of of Mexicans and indigenous persons and um, communities that were living on the land base that um, had been claimed by Mexico, but was seized by the United States after the U.S.-Mexico War. And then when you have the integration of the U.S. and Mexican economies that begins to happen really in the 1880s with the completion of a transcontinental railroad running north and south between the United States and, and central Mexico, Um, Then you also see the rise of mass labor migration from Mexico to the United States. And that's really happening at the turn of the 20th century. About, you know, 100,000 Mexicans are migrating in the early years of the 20th century to come up to jobs in the United States. And they're coming because foreign investors and, and major Mexican elites are displacing indigenous and rural communities by buying up and privatizing land across Mexico. Those displaced um, workers, you know, they go to look for jobs in towns on haciendas and on the railroads. And by the early 20th century, they're beginning to migrate north into the United States in search of work. 1910, there's also a socialist movement in the United States concerned about a lot of the same issues of exploitation and democracy that the Magonistas are concerned about in Mexico. Tell us about socialism in the United States and the Magonistas' relationship with the Anglo-American and European socialists of the United States. When the Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends and journalists and the social movement begin to rebuild their community here in the United States, that's happening between 1904 and 1910, they come into contact with some of the leading radical voices in the United States. Think Emma Goldman having conversations with Ricardo Flores Magón in St. Louis was a hotbed of labor organizing and socialist politics. They're certainly influencing one another's thoughts and minds. And Emma Goldman, of course, is one of the great anarcho-feminists of the early 20th century. And Ricardo goes on to become an anarcho-feminist as well. He stands against marriage as a form of slavery. And so they're talking to each other, they're influencing each other, they're figuring out that there are transcontinental, international relationships among workers and organizers that if the Rockefellers and the Guggenheims and others are um, playing an anti-labor role in the United States and they're gaining a lot of their capital and their profit and their power out of their investments in Mexico, that they have a shared goal, right, of challenging the power of these elites, which has extended across borders. And so um, Anglo-American progressives and radicals, especially members of the Socialist Party, by the 1910 had become strong supporters of the Magonistas. And they do a couple of things in particular. They help the Magonistas reach a broader audience by publishing um, books and articles in English in major progressive newspapers, 
about the conditions of life and labor in Mexico. That's really important because the mainstream progressive Anglo-American population at the time, the early 20th century, had a vision of Porfirio Diaz as being a great reformer, right? He had brought stability to Mexico and they didn't know much about the labor conditions in Mexico. And the Magonistas, through their partnerships with Anglo-American radicals, helped to change that narrative in the United States, which makes it more uncomfortable for the United States government to support the Diaz administration and try to suppress the Magonistas. So you say this group of Mexican radicals and revolutionaries that had created a new base in Laredo sparked what became revolution against Diaz in Mexico. How exactly did they do that? So they cross into Laredo, Texas in January of 1904. And their first goal is to relaunch their newspaper, Renaracion. But within days of arriving in Laredo, they notice that they're being followed everywhere. And they knew that that was Diaz's spies. So they move to San Antonio and then St. Louis, where they are able to relaunch their newspaper. They establish a political party, the PLM, the Partido Liberal Mexicano. And they also begin to establish cells or focos across the United States that are both subscribers to the newspaper or members of the PLM, but also they're beginning to gather arms to ready themselves for an armed assault in Mexico. And there's a labor strike at a a mine in northern Mexico, in Cananea, Sonora, Mexico, in June of 1906. And it's that labor strike which turns deadly against uh, the Mexican workers who are striking against an Anglo-American mine operator in Mexico that inspires the the PLM to call for an all-out armed revolution in Mexico within one year's time. So between 1906, it's really after that uprising and when they issue a manifesto, right, a program to the nation saying this armed uprising is not just about unseating Porfirio Diaz, but it's also about protecting labor rights for Mexican workers about returning land to indigenous and rural communities that have been displaced through the Diaz regime, about ending child labor, about ending debt servitude, about protecting democracy, about this social and economic revolution. Well, the United States looks at that and says, oh no. (laughs) And they get really busy. The US Marshals, Department of War, the Attorney General, the Post Office, everybody gets involved, all hands on deck to do whatever they can to stop the PLM from organizing this revolution in Mexico. And you say that the Magonistas not only changed the course of history in Mexico, they opened a new chapter in the history of policing in the United States. Tell us a little more about that. The PLM is able to um, launch four armed raids into Mexico, one in September of 1906 and three in June of 1908. And it's immediately following the raids of June of 1908, which are the most lethal and stunning and damaging for the Diaz administration, that the United States President Theodore Roosevelt, along with the U.S. Attorney General at the time, Charles Bonaparte, they establish a new police force to be able to enforce federal law. What's the name of this police force? Police force is the one and only, at that time, Bureau of Investigation, which goes on to become the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So one of the really important parts about the Magonista story and how it relates to U.S. history is that the FBI, which goes on to become a counterinsurgency super force throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, 
um, really cuts its teeth. One of its very first big cases was chasing down members of the PLM and doing everything they could to suppress the outbreak of the 1910 Mexican Revolution. And then there's a huge and horrifying postscript to your story. El Plan de San Diego, an uprising in South Texas in 1915. You call it one of the largest and deadliest uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. I never heard about this. Tell us about it. Yeah, there's so much in this book um, that many people won't have heard much about. But I must say that there are many scholars who've been writing on these issues for quite some time, and I, I lean on their work. And the goal of this book is to haul that knowledge out of the academy and to bring it to a broader public. So Plan de San Diego, as you said, is um, an uprising that happens in South Texas in the summer of 1915. And this is right in the middle of the Mexican Revolution. And a group of Mexican nationals and Mexican-Americans get together and they concoct a plan that if they have already removed Diaz from power in Mexico and are on their way to gaining economic and a political revolution in Mexico, why should that not transcend borders as well? So they look north to Texas and to the United States. They form an army for all races and peoples. They recruit um, Black folks, Asian folks, and others to um, move across South Texas to assassinate any white male 16 or older and to seize land. And that the first lands seized by this army of liberation for the people would go to African-Americans as a sanctuary from white supremacy. And the next set of lands would go to indigenous peoples as a sanctuary from settler supremacy. Wow. It's an incredible vision and then would go to Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, but they wanted to really unlock the land from white settler supremacy. And so they begin their uprising in the summer of 1915 in South Texas, ripping up railroad tracks, yes, committing assassinations and more. And the response is extraordinary of the vigilantes, the U.S. Marshals, the Department of War begin to summarily lynch and kill an uncounted number of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans across the region. Historians and some folks have estimated that anywhere between 300 and perhaps as high as 5,000 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were murdered in retaliation for Plan de San Diego. And so you have two things that happened in the summer of 1915 and, and heading into 1916. Is one, one of the most significant uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. This army of all non-white peoples coming together. And you also have one of the deadliest suppression campaigns of that kind of uprising in U.S. history. And here's the shocking thing. So almost nobody knows it happened. Um, this is a, a history, Latinx history general, in general, Mexican-American history in particular, um, that has not gotten enough coverage in the canon of the American story. And so this book about this relatively small group of Mexican migrants who had a particular dream of the early 20th century, my hope is that it's part of a broader program and campaign to kick open the doors of U.S. history, to see so many of the stories we hadn't seen before, to think about how they transform our understanding of who we are uh, as a people. And one last thing, your title, Bad Mexicans, where does that come from? 
Bad Mexicans is a term that the dictator and his regime in Mexico used to describe the dissidents, the rebels, the insurgents. And so he would call Ricardo Flores Magón and his the members of his social movement bad Mexicans. And they were bad Mexicans, malos mexicanos, for challenging his regime. Now, of course, right, I knew the moment... I knew I was going to write this book was the moment that we had another autocrat here in the United States, President Donald Trump, who had declared Mexican migrants to be bad hombres. And I wanted to provide a history as to what he was stirring up when he was using that kind of rhetoric targeting Mexican migrants, that there had been another autocrat at another time who had declared Mexicans seeking a better life for themselves and their families as Malos Mexicanos. And so this is a part of the shared story of um, the freedom dreams of Mexico's dispossessed and the attempts of various autocrats across time to suppress their, their social movements. Kelly Little Hernandez, her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands during and after Mexico's 1910 revolution has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Oh,